Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I am your host, Talia Murdoch, and today I will be talking to PhD candidate Pablo Gutierrez about his research into income inequality. If you haven't already listened to it, please go and download episode four of this podcast, which covers some of the theory we'll be chatting about today. It will give you the background to the Lorenz curve and Gini coefficient, as we won't be going into detail about these. Rather, we will be exploring Pablo's new method of measuring income equality and what current Canadian data tells us about the state of equality in this country. So, Pablo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. So a quick introduction, no. Pablo is an economist at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. You're a PhD candidate working on three yeah. projects right now about income inequality. So definitely thank you for doing the hard yards and all the research for us here on the ground. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and what made you want to undertake this research? Okay, well, my you say my name is Pablo. I, am, I came from Chile. You know, first, the, the thing that motivates my research is the reality in my country. As you can see uh, in the index, Chile sounds like a high-income country right now. But if you live in Chile, this is not like that, you know? There's just a few people that has a lot of money, but there is a lot of people that doesn't have enough money. And also, it's kind of very difficult to do what, what, you, what you really want to do. There is a lot of connections that matters, you know, connections that rich people has, you know, and inequality is the main problem of my country. So me as an economist that study like neoclassical models and math and statistics, obviously I am an, I am a nerd person, you know, doing a PhD in economics, not like, like, oh yeah, you are the coolest guy in the world, you know, no, I am nerd, you know? And also- hey, economics, know, economics is cool, come on. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, it's quite cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, you can say that we are the cool, the cool guys doing research, you know? Obviously, we're not in the lab or stuff like that. We we can see all research in the world, you know, or or about incentives uh, that things that happens, you know. But in that sense, and given that there is a lot, of, there are a lot of, of critiques related with with neoclassical economics, I really want to do something more close to statistics or or econometrics, you know, something something more related with data. So. I want to, so in that sense, I, I, I identify a problem in my country, and I know that I want to do statistics or, econo or econometrics. So the, the best mix for that is inequality measurement. Inequality, this is not about a sociological study about, about uh, inequality. This is just measurement, you know, pure measurement. There is some methodology, some methodology that I want to develop, you know, there's some data that I want to use, and there's a result that came from that, you know, and that numbers mean something, you know. So for me, I really love to to improve the frontier that was was done in in inequality measurement, um, in order to and, and also because this is this is helpful for people, you know, for people is if if you know how inequal is your country, then you can you can push more the government or the firms in order that they they can rise your wage or stuff like that you know so there's a lot of political things related with that so i am nerd yeah i about the, these things so that's why i research in inequality yeah totally that's the goal anyway um and i can definitely definitely tell from your papers that it is 
very much just about the statistics and the data. There's a lot of a lot of mathematics in there that kind of went over my head, but I still found it really interesting because I didn't do a postgrad. I just did an undergrad, so never really considered what was maybe lacking in our current way of measuring income inequality with just the standard Gini coefficient that it doesn't take into account a number of things, which we'll talk about today. So I just want to ask you off the top, um, in the beginning of your paper, you talk about top coding. So I was just hoping you could tell our listeners what that means. Yes. So this is important why, because you know that in order to measure stuff, economists do service, you know, in particular household service. For example, here in Canada, we have um, the the SFS, the Surveys of Financial Securities, and that survey measured wealth and income of people, right? Um, but the thing is like when you do a survey, there is something that is called the statistical secret. The idea is that nobody can make any guess of who is the person that answered the survey. Yeah, because, and yeah. because there, are, there are so few people that are with very, very high income, and if you if you have the value of the income of that person, right, then it could be possible to know that person. So in order to avoid that, what people do is to define an, an income threshold, right? And if someone has more than that value, the survey will report just that value. You know, so suppose that you define your threshold at 200,000 Canadian dollars. So everyone that earns more than that value if the survey just appeared that with $200,000. And as we know, this is an issue. Why? Because as we know, um, inequality is concentrated at the top. So with the traditional tools of measuring measure inequality, there is a there is a lot of the distribution, a lot of the, of the, of the hot part that we're not evaluating, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so is that is that common in all research, or is it just specific to measuring income because that's more of a private um, figure, I guess? Yeah, it's related with income and wealth. You know that that is the that is the that is the, that is the key part. You know because if you want to measure, for example, unemployment, you know that the status of the person, you know, that person is working or not, or is searching work or not. You know, but in 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 this income, you know, because you are observing a value variable, right? Um, okay. It's, it's, it has these kind of issues. You know, it's not just so. This problem is particular for income service, and it, it will affect a lot the measure that you are doing for 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 inequality. You know. Okay. Interesting. All right. So. Something else you talk about in, I think, the first paper you sent me is the Atkinson approximation. So okay. can you tell us what that is and what it's trying to do? Okay, first of all, like, I want to talk a bit about Anthony Atkinson or Tony Atkinson, which is like an amazing public economist. You know, this guy is like the father of the more public economics as, as we know, you know. So this guy does a lot of progress on taxation, inequality measurement, um, um, in a theoretical way and with data, you know. So this guy, um, he, this guy realized about this problem, right? And given that you, you know the top, you know that there is top coding, 
right? And also, not all the people that you're going to serve, you, you, that you do a survey, is going to answer your survey, right? So this generates a bias, right? So for example, it's very likely that the richest guy in Canada is going to answer the survey because it's not mandatory to answer a survey, right? Sure. So given that, household service gives a limited information to compute inequality, right? So to overcome this problem, you can mix information from household service for using another source of, source of information. For example, information from the Canadian Revenue Agency, right? Or tax yeah. declarations, right? So you can estimate the Gini coefficient using household, household data and tax data, right? So one example, how to use this stuff? Suppose that you use your household survey to compute inequality for the poorest 99% of the population, and you get information about the share of the top 1%. So with that mixing this kind of two informations, you can estimate the Gini coefficient. You can get an estimate of the Gini coefficient. So that is the acting on approximation. So it's just, it's pretty much just to make sure that the data is giving you a more realistic yeah. look at the actual picture of what's going on rather than just assuming that every single person answered it. I mean, that makes that makes perfect sense. Are there any limitations to that method? Yes, yes. You know, in my research, I showed that sadly this method give, give a, a higher inequality than the truth, you know. That is, that is the, main, the main limitation because, okay, we have this approximation, but you can, at the end, you can report a higher Gini coefficient than the true, you know? But the thing is, like, this is more problematic if you use that Kinson approximation to solve for non-response. As I said, non-response is where a person who who is was selected to answer the survey decided not, not to answer the survey. But if you want to include, for example, um, non-reported income, and one example is um, income that you have in tax heavens, you know, you can use this, this approximation and the bias is going to be very, very small. So yeah, we have the limitation of the bias, but we also, if we use this formula to, to, to adjust a particular problem, then it's not so big the the bias and we can get like a decent estimate of the Gini coefficient. So in your second paper, so are these two papers part of the projects you're working on or is this stuff that you had written in the past? Uh, the thing is like those, those two papers are chapters of my PhD thesis, you know, so yes. Okay, awesome. So you use a, in the second one, you use a comprehensive definition of income based on the Hyg-Simons concept. Hyg-Simons? Yes. Um, can you briefly tell the listeners what the concept is? This is where the yes. math started to get a bit, bit crazy for me. <laughs> yes, because what do we know about income? What is income? You know, and Hyg-Simons proposed a very, a very comprehensive definition of income. So income for these guys is going to be the consumption that you get plus all the change that you get on wealth, right? So in that sense, if you get, for example, capital gains, which is a change in your, on your wealth, that is part of your income, 
right? And if you, if, uh, I also observe that you, that you buy a car and and you buy and then you or you decide to go on vacation or or, or stuff like that that are, are your, your consumption, then I can I can I can know your income, you know. So at the end, yeah. the, the high assignment concept is a very simple way to define income: just consumption plus plus your change in wealth. Yeah. Change in wealth. So. My question then, when I, for example, go onto the OECD website and have a look at the Gini coefficient for the countries that are involved, are they using this concept or are they just looking at income relative to consumption or do they consider wealth? Oh, yeah. So the, the income that they define is the, is the definition of income that you have your served in national account, in particular national income. You know, um, and okay. there are two okay. There are two kind of measure income. You know, one is before taxes, before personal taxes, and the other one is after taxes. What you come and observe is that if you include taxes, uh, the Gini coefficient should be, should should be lower. Why? Because around the world, taxes are progressive, so you charge more taxes to rich guys. So in that sense, if you include that in your in your in the way that you're measuring stuff, you should observe um, a, a lower Gini coefficient. Um, but here, my idea is to measure inequality before personal taxes, right? And include this more compre comprehensive definition of income. Yeah, so you're just taking like a bigger look. And I think that's really important as well because if you're, for example, earning $150,000 per year as your as your salary, the chances are that you do have a lot of wealth as well. Yes. So you can't just compare that to someone who's earning $50,000 because they probably don't. They're probably still renting if they're, if they're in their 20s and earning that. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a good way of looking at, looking at it. It definitely seems a lot more accurate <laughs> and important to me. What kind of yeah. drawbacks do you experience with the new methodology, if any? Uh, yeah, so first, first first, of all, I want to explain, like, why I care about this high definition, you know? Because first, that paper, my second paper, is about include retained earnings. You know, why retained earnings is the part of profits that firms decide to put to, to not to give as dividend, right? Because Why? Because with profits, you can do three things, give dividends, pay taxes, or retain money inside the firm, right? As we know, there are someone that owns the property of firms. Could be one person, could be like a lot of people, you know? So at the end, that money belongs to someone, right? And the key point here is that we know that the total value of a firm is the discounted value of all the expected future dividends, right? So if you expect more dividends in the future, the price of your firm is going to increase, right? In that sense, if I put more money inside my firm, I should expect a higher price of the firm in the future, right? That means if I put money inside my firm, I will have a higher price, and then this implies that I will have a capital gain, yeah? measured by the increase of the price given or 
given that or because I put um, money inside the firm, right? So in that sense, if I use the high Simon definition, which is the consumption plus the change on wealth, and capital gains by definition are change on your wealth, are a change on your wealth, then um, redeemed earnings, right, will imply a capital gain. Now, the difficult part here is how should I identify owners of retained earnings, right? For example, suppose suppose that I want to I want to know who are the owners of retained earnings that Tim Horton has as a whole company, right? It's almost impossible to have that data, right? So in order to overcome this problem, one I had to do some some assumptions, right? And in particular, that rich people owns those retained earnings, and if a person is richer, she will own more retained earnings. Right? This cannot be true in particular, but you can show that there's some evidence that says that, yeah, you, you, you have more money or, or more income that is not retained earnings, you should have more ownership of retained earnings. So the drawback here is that I am assuming that retained earnings should, that I, I am assuming that if I put retained earnings in the analysis, inequality is going to increase just for that, you know? So the question is how much, you know? Um, the things like this, one say, but this is not, maybe it's not true because there are, there are people that just have ownership of firms and in some years you're not reporting dividends. So that person just have uh, firms and you're not observing any income in our sources of in our sources. For example, that person could appear as a zero in a household survey, but that doesn't mean that that person in the next year is not going to receive any income, right? Just that particular year, all the um, firms that that person has didn't report any 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 particular income. You know that could be a bit problematic because one say that no. Uh, earnings is not going to increase uh, inequality. But, you know, there's a lot of way to justify these kind of assumptions, you know. So it's, it's, the, it's the only thing that I can do with the data that I have right now, you know. Um, then you have to be very creative, creative in the in the way how to, how to infer from the data that we have, because at the end I just have aggregate data for reading earnings. Okay, that's interesting. Do you think that, um, so obviously it can change year on year depending on what's happening. And is there just, is there no method of reporting retained earnings in that way other than surveys? Is it something that's just sort of, they don't, like people don't have to say? Yeah, the thing is like, for example, what you can do, and there's a paper for that in Canada, um, you can you can use administrative data to to know everything uh, earnings of closely held firms that that, is, that are so those closely held firms are firms that has a very limited numbers of owners and that is an, an impute impute rating earnings in that way you can do it you know but the amount of data that you got that you that you need 
very, very, you have to know a lot of administrative data, you know, but in my paper, I want to impute corporate um, retained earnings, and it's like publicly open firms, you know, not closely held firms, right? So, so yeah, so in that sense, um, well, in, in if, if, if I include retained earnings and assuming all the, all, all the assumptions that I described before, right? I show yeah. that inequality increases. Uh, that is mechanical. But this is the important part, trend, and the trend change. Why? Because if you use previous measures, right, you will observe a decrease of inequality um, after, no, yeah, an increase of inequality after the Great, the great Recession, after 2008, right? But if I include reporting earnings, I observe that inequality decreases after the Great Recession, right? And more important, and our important point is that the increase of the share of the top one percent could be tremendous if I if I if I include reporting earnings. In particular, for example, for the for 2005, the top one percent increased by 16.5 percentage percentage point from 7.8 percent to 24 to 24.3 percent right which is a huge increase right so there is if you use the traditional method of computing income inequality there is a lot of the picture that you are not taking into account you also talk about tax systems a lot and show how they can change the level of income inequality in a country, particularly when it comes to foreign investors. So what can you tell us about the impacts of tax systems on your research? Oh, yeah. This is, you know, in particular, this is the most uh, subtle point that I'm making the paper. Why? Because when I say that retained earnings imply a capital gain, right? Uh, you have to include corporate taxes and dividend taxes, right? In order to measure why is the value um, that a retained a retain earning implies as capital gain, right? The things like what matters is, for example, if you are if you are if you are foreigner or not, why? Because if you are a foreigner, you have different rules to pay dividend taxes, right? Which implies that the capital gain generated for having the money inside the firm is going to be different, right? So, but again, this is this is not like, for example, okay, after tax the, the the after tax and before tax definition that I that that I explained to you before. This is just about the value. That the money has inside the firm, you know, and given that uh, foreigners uh, has different rules, the capital gain uh, defined by um, by retainer earnings is going to be different. And for example, if you assume that the um, the the investor is is foreigner, right? Uh, you should expect less income inequality, okay? Um, yep. 
Yeah, why? Because those guys are going to pay less taxes for for dividend taxes, right? And um, well, this is kind of a very theoretical uh, um, discussion. Who is the marginal investor? You know, and as as as, as we know, economists we work like 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 in marginal levels in order in order to define the um, one cost or one benefit. You know. So in that case, there is a theory that says that in, an, in a small open economy, as Canada, you know, um, what matters is, is foreigners. So for that reason, this point is important. You know, so in my research, I, I make those different assumptions, right? Um, the, there, is, there is some difference, but it's not so small. Sorry, so it's not so big. Right, the difference between between the the tax system. You have some differences, but at the end, what really matter matters is what is the share of profit of of these retained earnings that belong to people, and what is the share that belongs to to pension plans. You know, that is the key. That is the most important key key assumption in this part. You know, because why? Because um, when you have a pension plan, and almost everybody who is a, who lives in Canada and staying in Canada has some has some kind of, of of savings for for your retirement, right? And if you invest, for example, in group of of or your money in some companies, they're going to start investing in other companies. So at the end, um, the the money that I have to impute. To measure inequality using my method could be could, could be different, you know. So, so like making a summary of everything, like it matters in the sense of of the the the, the evaluation pro the, the the how how value inequality, but in terms of reading earnings, it's not so much so 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 important, you know. Okay. That's an interesting point. People's pension plans. Mm-hmm. Do you know in Australia it is mandatory for your employer to pay nine percent on top of your wage into a pension plan, which is a great law in my opinion. Mm, I see. You know, in my country, in Chile, that is a major issue right now because if you, you if you get because we have this thing that you have to pay 12% of your income and it's kind of mandatory each month, right? And there's people that work for for four years and they get very, very low, they, they work for four years, uh, they pay their, their, their security, you know, the 12% of their, their wage and after four years they get like very few money. And that's kind of unfair, you know, you're working all your life and you get in your and the money that you're receiving is not enough in order to live, you know. So that are, yeah. So that are the kind of stuff that you say, this is unfair, you know. This shouldn't be in that. Oh, definitely. You know. So yeah. So for that reason. Hmm? So so the individual has to pay twelve percent, and I imagine that. Well, I don't know what what are wages like in Chile. Are they 
are they fair or are they because they can be very low for some people you know the, the minimum wage like in, in in regular canadian dollars before taxes and and this payment is if you work for 40 hours a week is 580 dollars per month per month right per month right, right. oh my gosh yeah it's pretty low you know and after, and if you include if you, if you reduce the the health system and the pension plans um is going to be uh five hundred hundred and eighty dollars right so what what you can do yeah. with that? nothing right yeah, exactly. Because Chile is quite, um, it's one of the more expensive South American countries, from what I understand. Like, it's got a, quite a high cost of living, right? Right. And the minimum wage is very low. So, yeah. So, at the end, it's kind of yeah, unfair, you know. You, 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 you see un unfairness in everything. Believe in everything, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So, okay. So, I guess after everything we've talked about today, then, and so far... Your, you haven't finished your thesis. I mean, I guess, can a thesis ever really be completed? Um, but from, from what you know, what would you suggest policymakers do, if anything at all, to try and make income more equal? Um, well, first of all, we have to measure better inequality, you know, inequality or poverty yep. or whatever, you know. You know, me as a as a researcher you know I, I just want to say that please measure this thing better you know try i i i i really like that the government invest more in order to get better better data you know better service uh, and that is important in order to know the reality and to know to evaluate it for for example if the tax system if if enough progressive or not but in the other yeah. hand Canada, you know, living in Canada is not so bad, you know. So what I can say about Canada is like, oh yeah, maybe they have to, to charge more taxes, you know, but at the end it's kind of yeah, maybe maybe you can implement like a very, very rich taxes including regain earnings, you know. But in my country yeah. the situation is quite different. There, for me, I don't know, you have to change all the tax system, you know, because why I care about retaining earnings in particular, because in Chile, there is a lot of incentives to pay less taxes, right, uh, using retained earnings, and then use that money without paying taxes. So, so yeah, exactly. So there, there, I, I me as a Chilean guy, you know, and I, I, I propose to change the whole system, you know, but that is kind of complicated, you know, because you as an economist or, or as a researcher could have an idea of how to do this stuff, but you know that this is a political thing, you know, there are political willingness that you're not controlling. So it's kind of, sad, you know, because you're going to spend a lot of time thinking what is the solution, but at the end it's not dependent. No, and it's definitely cultural as well. I think it's just kind of bred into, definitely bred into Australians and a lot of Canadians, maybe not as many as I've met back at home, to taxes are evil, they're so bad, you're getting ripped off, you don't want to pay them. 
So you've kind of got to change like an entire society's idea about what your taxes are actually going towards. You yeah. know, they're helping people who are less fortunate. <laughs> when it comes down to it, they're giving everyone an equal opportunity at life. And that's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, it's hard. So thanks heaps for coming on. No, thank you to you. I really appreciate that you that you contact me, you know, about about this stuff. Yeah, totally. Awesome. I'm glad. Thanks again. You too. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate everything. Okay. Appreciate you coming on. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Pablo Gutierrez with a really in-depth and interesting take on income inequality and in particular how our current methods of measurement can be misleading and don't always reflect the true level of inequality a country might be experiencing. I will be hopefully having Pablo on in the next four months when he finishes the next section of his research to have a look at what the data is telling us and if he's made any new discoveries as he develops his thesis. This is definitely something that I become more and more passionate about pretty much every time I open Twitter or consume some type of news. To think that we live in a society where we have more technology, more health resources, more money, more wealth, more capacity to grow local food, provide education, the list goes on. But for some reason still have a massive portion of our population living below the poverty line, struggling in the lower class with the middle class fading is just sad. In 2016, 13% of the Canadian population were living below the poverty line. GDP that year was 1.5 trillion US dollars. So it just doesn't really make sense anymore. When you allow the very rich to write off non-stimulating investments like a property that doesn't make any profit, you are only benefiting them. This extra income or tax savings just does not trickle down. And we learn this more and more as time goes on. In the US, things have only gotten worse. A recent analysis done by the Economic Policy Institute, which I've posted on our website, shows that real median wages, so those being earned in the middle, have only grown by 0.2% in the last year, while those in the 95th percentile of wages, so the top earners in the country, enjoyed a 1.5% increase. And think of the difference in the dollar value of these increases. In 2017, the nominal median wages in the US were roughly $58,000 per year. Increase that by 0.2% and you're looking at earning an extra $116 in 2018, about $2 per week. Meanwhile, if you're in that 95th percentile, you're earning $150,300 or more. Increase that by 1.5% and you're getting another $2,554, which is about an extra $50 per week. The standard cost of living is the same for everyone. It isn't like your bills are relative to your income. Also, it is critical to remember that these are the nominal incomes. When we take inflation and other factors into account, you can take over $20,000 off the median income of 2017. In reality, someone earning $58,000 in the US only has the purchasing power of $31,000, which is significantly less and really hard to live off. A college education these days doesn't even guarantee the fair wage growth that is anticipated. At the bottom half of the wage distribution for college-educated workers, wages remain lower than they were in 2007 or even 2000, despite strong economic growth. And this is general. I haven't even mentioned gender or racial inequalities, which, not surprisingly, are in a dire situation as well. So check out that study that I've posted as it goes into this stuff in a lot more detail and it is quite alarming. In my research, I also came across a fantastic website called Don't Quit Your Day Job, 
which pulls data from all over the web, providing easy-to-use interactive income analysis. In particular, I really like their centiles calculator, where you can enter an income amount and see what percentile someone earning that was in 2017 and how many people made that. I've posted a link to this calculator as well on the Cave Goblins website, so check it out, get mad, join me. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please rate and review on iTunes, set the show to auto-download, guarantee your fix every week. Next week, I'll be revisiting quantitative easing and how that has panned out in the last five years. You can follow the show on Twitter at EveryEconomics and find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. Come and talk to us. Send us an email, feedback, episode suggestions, anything. We have a Discord server and a subreddit that want your input. You can also hear me on another podcast recently, Podcast vs. Podcast. No economics, just a heap of fun, so check that show out too. I'll link it on our website. Don't forget to also listen to Doug Vandalay's Comedy Zeitgeist, which is always a bunch of fun. Thanks again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. 